Welcome to the GW Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, leadership, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the Foggy Bottom Campus in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the Business of Sports program at GW. My producer is Henry Levy. Rebecca Carpenter is an artist, a filmmaker, and a daughter. Her dad, Lou Carpenter, played 10 seasons in the National Football League, and he was an assistant coach for many seasons after that. Lou Carpenter's life in football and decline from the insidious brain disease, CTE, is the subject of an important documentary film, Requiem for a Running Back. Rebecca visited the GW campus recently for a screening of Requiem, and during her time in Washington, D.C., we sat down to discuss the movie, the disease, and her late dad. Rebecca, welcome to GW, and thank you for coming to campus. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. Well, we, we appreciate having you. Having seen your film, uh, we know that your dad was a pretty special football player. Tell us about your dad as a dad. Oh, gosh. Well, um, if you grew up watching uh, Leave it to Beaver or The Brady Bunch, um, you have a really specific image of dad, and that was not my dad. <laughs> Think of maybe Bad News Bears mm. or um, North Dallas 40 or uh, my favorite movie, Slapshot, Paul Newman character. That's, that's probably more my dad on a mellow day. So what, what exactly do you mean by that? Um... You know, what's amazing now, having gone on this journey of making this film, is the dad that I carry in my heart is this dad that's just so full of life and so full of love, and he just wants to suck the marrow out of life, and he wants you to be able to do that too. Um, but he can't slow down enough to figure out how to help you do that. Um, a guy who's able to do that with an elite athlete knows how to do that at, 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 at a high speed, at high velocity, because they're all moving at high velocity. But when you're five, you're not moving at high velocity. And um, so I think there was just sometimes a gap in his desire of uh, what he wanted for us to be able to manifest for ourselves and his ability to help coach us into that. So uh, just for the benefit of people who haven't seen the film, um, the film deals with your dad's diagnosis of chronic traumatic cephalopathy after his death and the extent to which that was a revelation to the family and explained a lot of his behaviors. Can you explain how the film began? What, what was the, the trigger for the project? Yeah, absolutely. When my father died, we got a cold call. His obituary had gone out on the wire and a young researcher from Boston University called us and asked us if we would donate his brain and spine to a brand new study on the impact of concussions and professional football players. My dad had never had a concussion. My dad had never had a diagnosed, documented concussion. He had been involved in football at the professional level for 41 years. He had been a varsity athlete in four years in college. We thought he would want his what was left of him, which was his body, um, to go to support research and support he loved. Fast forward to getting the test results back and learning that he had a CTE 3.5 to 4, which was the most severe level of CTE. 
you know, I had kind of heard about Mike Webster and I had read some of Alan Schwartz's articles in the New York Times. Um, my dad's behaviors didn't match the behaviors that they were describing in the newspaper. That's not a criticism of the newspaper. It's just me kind of going, well, he wasn't living in his car, having to taser himself in order to go to sleep. Well, he wasn't, um, he wasn't uh, violent. He wasn't physically violent. Uh, he wasn't explosive in the ways that they were described. Well, what was he? He could be explosive, but it was so intermittent, there wasn't a pattern. It didn't seem like there was a pattern. <clears throat> so I had been um, telling this to a friend of mine uh, who had also worked in the movie business. We had both had small children at the time and we had decided to step away from the movie business and to do other things because it was too demanding for us uh, to be the kind of parents that we wanted or had the kind of family life that we wanted. And um, she said, you know, I think you should start documenting this because I feel like there's something going on here that's, that's bigger than you. That was really how it started. We had $20,000, and um, we decided we would go on the road and start trying to find out what was really going on. Um, because Dad's behaviors didn't match Mike Webster's. That's sort of the headline of it. Um, so when you say you, you went on the road, mm -hmm. your journey was, at least in part, to mm -hmm. connect with the families of other former professional football players who had been diagnosed with CTE or who had symptoms that are consistent with the disease. That's right. Can you, can you share some of those stories, families that you met along the way, mm -hmm. and how they informed your thinking mm -hmm. and, and um, helped mm -hmm. you um, complete the film? Yeah, um, I have two responses to that. One was there was a lot of fear that I encountered, people being afraid of going public or um, not really wanting to acknowledge that this could be true because there are a lot of people who are actually very high functioning who do have this disease. Doesn't mean they're not symptomatic. Um, so, so that was tough to start seeing that and, and I couldn't get any of those people to go on camera. Um, when I did start to meet families who were living with cognitive impairment and behavioral symptoms that were consistent with CTE, um, the people that I met did resemble my father and did resemble my family. And they, and they looked different than what I had been seeing and hearing in the existing media. Again, that's not a criticism of the existing media. It was just, I started to find people who were more like me. What do I mean by that? I mean by that um, a guy who might have been um, sort of outgoing socially or have a very um, vivacious persona, which would be true of my father. My father could be sort of very quiet and, and focused, like me, and then also like really gregarious and outgoing um, in certain situations, like me, you know? Um, so, so that wasn't any big surprise, but, but starting in his 40s, he started having these sort of explosive episodes that was different than how he had ever been before that. Um, and it was intermittent, and it would be caused by something that seemed random. Um, 
and it was almost like what I would call like almost like a post-traumatic stress response to kids giggling at bedtime. I mean, it, you could come home with an F. Actually, I never came home with an F, but. Um, and he would say, "Well, did you put your did you put the work in that you needed to do, or you know what were your goals? Well, did you achieve your goals? I mean, he would be like that over that. But if something was um, uh, an instance later in life, I'm at his house. The dogs are outside. He lives with three small dogs. Um, he says to my niece, "Don't open the door. I want to keep the dogs outside." She accidentally opens the door. The dogs come racing in. They're he is so startled. And, and thrown off guard by the energy of these dogs racing around him all of a sudden that he starts screaming and yelling, you know, God damn it, get the dogs. What, what, you know, what did you do? To... It wasn't consistent with the guy he was the rest of the time. The guy that I knew would say, would might have said, you know, God damn it, who let the dogs, you know, in. And then he would have gone and put the dogs outside and said, like, come on, like, let's get back to it. This was a guy who was completely undone by that. So I started meeting families for whom that was a more typical uh, response. And then later, he became really withdrawn socially. He didn't want to go out and interact with people. He would come to family events, um, but he didn't socialize anymore. Didn't he was, a, he was an avid poker player, didn't go play poker. If he would play online cribbage, he would get really frustrated and agitated. Um, I don't know, he just receded. Um, and, and I saw that more in the people who, who I met. The people who are in the film, mm -hmm. why did they want to be in the film and show that, that side of their lives that was um, so painful? I don't know why. I think at the time, there were other families who were feeling the way that I felt, which was um, there were there were some stories out there. Alan Schwartz had been doing a fantastic job in the New York Times. Um, there was a patient of Dr. Cantu's that, that Dr. Cantu had written about and that Alan Schwartz had written about whose symptoms sounded more like my father's. So I was definitely intrigued by Alan Schwartz's mathematical approach to what was going on, and it was a numbers game to him, um, and that just the numbers didn't add up um, from an epidemiological standpoint, and that was interesting to me. So when I started meeting families, I think they felt the same way. They would go to a neurologist who would say, your husband has dementia, or your husband has some sort of cognitive impairment. Um, it was probably caused by repeat blunt force trauma to his head. And this is our diagnosis, this is how we would treat it. We don't have a cure for it, but we do know that behaviorally there are a lot of things we can do to slow its impact. And I just think at the time, they knew that I had been through what they were going through. Um, there were doctors who were diagnosing frontotemporal dementia in these guys, um, and, and it wasn't being connected in the mainstream press. And again, I'm not knocking the mainstream press. It was just our experience was different. But you know, watching the film, it seems that there's um, some comfort among families who are experiencing this. At least that, that's the impression, I think, that the film gives families that are going through this 
are are searching for the you know the for other families who are having similar experiences or if not searching actively then benefiting from being in touch with them there's no question that being a part of a group a support group helps alleviate our own um the drain on the systems uh what i mean by that is you know if you live with an alcoholic there are people who join 12-step groups in order to have more tools for living with an alcoholic if you live with somebody who's been diagnosed with alzheimer's you can join a support group for people with alzheimer's um now for brain injury uh i haven't come across a lot of support groups are specifically for brain injury and brain injury has really specific symptoms the person was there one day and the next day they're gone they still look the same but their behaviors are gone their personality has been has been irrevocably altered so yeah absolutely finding community and creating community i call it the secret handshake um i am available for phone calls emails and um, that will remain absolutely confidential and anonymous at this point um i'm actually um actively trying to support a group called after the impact fund that has created online support groups that are both anonymous and confidential um to help military vets and any athlete uh, who has dealt with a brain injury and a family that's dealing with the aftermath of that um in order to get resources out. Mm. So, what a great idea. Um last question. So you're here at GW for a screening of the film and to participate on a, a panel on the issue of head injury in youth sports and and ways in which uh, the safety of youth sports can be improved and and addressed. What has been the impact of the film? You know, you've been to Duke, you've been to Georgia Tech, Michigan, I believe. What has been the the impact of the film when you speak on college campuses? What are the kinds of questions you get and and uh the difference to the extent that you think you're making a difference by speaking about these issues? What that is? I find that going to a college campus that the curiosity, the driving curiosity of the students is really energizing for me. They're very much about living in the solution. and identifying and naming what's the actual problem so we can come up with an actual solution. And I find that I get a lot of energy from people who are interested in naming something and then moving very quickly toward solving something. Um I think that um another response that I get on college campuses is that it's the first time that people have seen it from the family perspective from beginning to end. from a from a young guy who's identified at a young age as being a gifted athlete who follows that sort of american myth of using sports to catapult the family out of um being the working poor to middle class respectability uh and then providing opportunity for his children to become uh, to follow a more uh traditional path of college education so on and so forth um that was his goal it's not the only goal a family should have could have i don't there's not a judgment on people who don't choose that but that was what he wanted for his family and he used athletics to do that um and then slowly these symptoms set in that really began to destroy his family life um and we didn't know what was going on 
So I think that um, ultimately my film is a message of hope, believe it or not, that, um, you know, life is hard. Life is hard for a lot of people. Um, if you can avoid getting a brain injury, I highly recommend avoiding it. If for whatever reason in your family, your community, your culture, your personal makeup, you feel compelled to engage in an activity that's likely going to result in brain injury, well then we need to make sure that we provide you with the medical resources, um, the interventions that will increase your quality of life, and especially if you're the main breadwinner for your family, that your family understands that you need to save the money that you've earned doing your sport and you need to make decisions in a certain way because when you're impaired, um, usually poor financial decision making is the first thing that happens and that's one of the first things that families noticed. So. Um, uh, I don't really feel like a judgy church lady about it. I kind of feel like this is just the reality. And, you know, there's the, um, there's the British, I think he was a soccer player. He might have been a race car driver. He said uh, he'd made a ton of money in his sport and then he went broke. And people say, well, how do you feel about going broke after all those years of making all that money? He said, well, I spent all my money on babes, booze, and cars, and the rest I wasted. <laughs> so, you know, it's a choice that, that a person can make. Uh, I'm not going to disparage that choice, but it should be an informed choice, and it should be as informed as possible. Well, we're very happy that you made the film, and really pleased that you come to GW for, I think, a really important program tonight, so thanks. Thank you. I really appreciate it.